from Ephesians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 14 through 21. Hear now God's word. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Today I want to ask you to do something that might seem odd. And yet it's something that we really ought to do on a regular basis. Especially when it comes to sermons. I want you to listen with your heart and not just your head. I want you to look to be moved in your heart by the Holy Spirit. I want you to feel His work in you. I want that to be your expectation and the thing you seek from the Lord. It is very easy to hear a sermon with our ears. But we forget sometimes why we're here and that we as listeners have a job to do, that we are seeking the Lord, that we are coming before the Lord individually, not just observing what's going on from the preacher, but that we're here to hear from Him. We're here to be moved by Him. We're here to be transformed and changed and motivated. Jesus loves you. And you love Him. And He has a message for you. The Spirit wants to take the Word of God and apply it to your heart. He wants to shape you. He wants to remake you. He wants to reform you. And since the Christian life encompasses all of life, it's important for us always to be working to maintain a good balance, which embraces all the necessary elements. We certainly do need good theology. We need sound doctrine. We need good teaching, which certainly requires instruction and learning and the development of our minds. Right thinking or corrected thinking is essential to right living. But it can't stop there. Our hearts, our desires, our loves, our passions must also be fully stimulated and engaged if we are to carry through. I fear for myself and for you that, that, we, are, that we often fall short on this point. In fact, it's possible to sit in church all your life, to hear a sermon every week, to hear Bible studies every week, to hear home worship all the time, to read your Bible even. 
and to never have the heart engaged. So I ask you to listen with your heart. The Spirit, you see, must also work on us, as the text says, on the inner man. And that has to happen before right doctrine has any power to affect the necessary changes in our lives and in our families. Without a steadfast and enthusiastic love for God and love for our neighbors, we lack the roots, we lack the motivation to sustain real growth in Christian maturity. If we ever achieve any level of mature Christian living, it will only be because we comprehended the love of Christ, which the text says goes beyond knowledge or is above knowledge. Knowledge is good, but knowledge is not enough. It will only come as we have real desire for Him and a hunger for His Word. Are you hungry? How hungry? Peter writes and says in 1 Peter 2, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. In other words, sorry attitudes. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Ties in with what Paul was saying here about us perceiving the love of Christ. When we perceive that, when we perceive just how much He's loved us, if we perceive just how gracious He's been to us, then our desire for Him is going to go up. Our hunger for the milk of the Word. In chapters 1 and 2 of the letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul has laid the theological foundation for the work of Christ in bringing all of his people, the Jews and the Gentiles, together into one Christian church. The mystery of God's plan has been revealed that he is gathering his people from all over the place, throughout history, all over the world. He is bringing them to be part of his family. These are the fundamental things that we need to know if we're going to make progress in the faith. It's not just me as an individual. It's not just me and Jesus. It's me and Jesus in the context of the family, of the household, of the church. He began in chapter 3 with, uh, Paul did with these words, for this reason, after he's completed or laid out this theological foundation in chapters 1 and 2. He says, for this reason, but immediately he moved into a parenthetical thought that continued through verse 13. Wherein he emphasizes in this parenthesis how God revealed the mystery of Christ and how he made the Gentiles, that is, how he made the Jews and the Gentiles fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ, through the gospel. The world is a broken, fractured place, a divided place. 
people at odds with each other all over the world in wars, in personal conflicts, in broken families. And Paul says the mystery of the Gospel is it brings the one thing, the message, that in Jesus Christ those divisions are taken away and that we are brought back together in Him. And so after emphasizing several other things accomplished through Jesus Christ, Paul ends this parenthetical exhortation with these words, Therefore, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In other words, the worst circumstances, looking at my circumstances here in a Roman prison, I don't want you to be discouraged. God's doing something. He's doing something grand. He's doing something bigger than me. Bigger than you. And you're part of that. Now in verse 14, Paul starts again, as he did in verse 1 of this chapter, with the words, for this reason. The parentheses is closed and he says, oh yeah, where was I? For this reason, and then he begins a great prayer for the Christians at Ephesus. At the heart of this prayer will be the apostles' concern for hearts for what he calls the inner man. And for the essential element of love as the thing that will enable us to comprehend, quote, the width and the length and the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. Have you thought about how much Christ loves you? Have you thought about how big it is, how wide, how long, how deep, how high? He says if you do, as you do, as you comprehend that more and more, then as a result, there's going to be a change in your attitude, in the inner man, in the way you look at yourself, in the way you look at the world, in the way you look at church, the way you worship, the way you work, the way you love. The way you do everything. Paul wants these Christians, and he wants us, he says, to be filled with all the fullness of God. And so he is writing, as I said, this letter from prison in Rome. He has been restrained, and he is, no doubt, in some miserable conditions. He can't go anywhere. He can't preach. But regardless of what his opponents do to him, there's one thing they can't do is they cannot keep him from praying. We sometimes treat prayer as though it is kind of our last ditch effort. Well, we really can't do anything else, so I guess we'll pray. But it's clear that Paul doesn't see prayer as a footnote to impotency. Prayer enables him, actually, to transcend the circumstances. He has access to the Father through the Spirit. And thus, for example, Paul would write to the Philippians that we should be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which... There's this idea again, surpasses our understanding. Remember, the love of Christ surpasses understanding. And now the peace of God, which will surpass our understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Surely Paul must have thought, I'm an apostle. 
God's called me to the Gentiles, but here I am in prison. Why does God have me here? Why am I locked up? What can I do to fulfill my calling? And so he does the one thing he knows he can do is he goes to God and he prays. And he prays very particularly for this church, for these Christians. He writes a letter. Again, we see how when we put our trust in God, we then have peace in our hearts. And again, a peace that surpasses or goes above or outside of our understanding. I don't know what's going on right this minute. I can't see what God is doing. I'm too close. I'm right in the middle of it. Sometimes later, I get some sense of perspective of what he was doing or why he was doing it. Or I see some fruit or results in my life and I recognize, oh, I see now what God was teaching me or what He was doing or if this hadn't happened, these other things wouldn't have happened. Sometimes later, He's pleased to let me perceive that. But oftentimes, most often in the middle of something, I don't. It guards our hearts and minds. Perhaps Paul was thinking of Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4. God, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. That idea of just casting yourself into the arms of God. I don't, all these other things going on, God, here I am, I'm yours. And so no matter where we are, no matter what circumstances we're under, we should and we can pray. And we, and we should, as Paul says, bow the knee or bow our knees to the Father. This is one way also that we can bear one another's burdens. Paul is not uh, simply, you know, Paul on more than one occasion asked people to pray for him. But Paul is here in prison praying for other people. And thus, we should first notice that the apostle recognized the importance of prayer. From just that statement that he bows his knees. Second, Paul also comprehends that prayer is just as essential as instruction. If all you do is sit and listen, and some, by the way, just sit. There's a difference in listening and acting like you're listening. That's another sermon. Some do sit and some listen. Uh, to a sermon or a Bible study, but they never pray, and as a result have left out an essential ingredient. And as a result, when you leave out the essential ingredient, your cake will never rise. It'll be hard and flat. Of course, we all know that we need instruction, right? Right? We start out ignorant and we need to constantly add to our knowledge, knowledge of the Bible. Our dark minds need to be enlightened. But as we gather information, we must also pray that it doesn't stop in our minds, but rather it it goes from our heads and sinks down into our hearts. We need to be gripped by the truth before it will affect real change in our lives. I know from counseling that the problem most people have is not a lack of knowledge of what to do, but rather a lack of real deep desire to do it. 
It is a pretty common thing for someone to listen to a sermon or a series of sermons. I had this happen actually at camp uh, where we were speaking on the subject of the love of God and our love for God and love for family and and uh, church and the world and our enemies, our neighbors, and someone at the end, meaning nothing bad by it at all, just said, I've heard all that before. Yes, I'm no doubt, at least the basics you've heard before. I'm always a little surprised. I think, well, then I've spent an awful lot of time working on this if you've already heard all that before. <laughs> but, that's a, uh, but I knew what he means. You know, hadn't we all heard about loving God? Loving our neighbors, loving our family. Yes, we've heard that. But why do we need to hear it again? Well, how's the family going? How is that relationship at work? How, how is your love for God? Are you on fire for God? Are you passionate about God? Are you filled with His love? Are you overwhelmed by His love? Is He the number one focus of your life every day? Is, do you really love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? then we're not there yet if the answer is no. And so, our problem continues as a result of us not wanting to take these things to heart. And then as a result, again in counseling frequently, what happens is people lose heart. They give up. They have no hope. Yeah, we've heard all that before. Now, we haven't done all that before, but we have heard it. We've heard it over and over and over, and then promptly went home, and we didn't do it. So we don't need to hear it anymore. And so we we decide it is the problem, not us. It's a lack of love for God that keeps us frozen in our current condition. Your lack of growth and Christian maturity in your marriage, your family, and the other areas of your lives is because your inner man remains unmoved. It hasn't yet become a priority. You have a lot of other priorities, but that's not one of them. You say that you, quote, struggle with this or that, but the fact is, you really haven't been struggling with anything. You've been overcome by some things, but you're not really struggling, because if you were really struggling, you would have your Bible out. You would be on your knees. You would be using the tools God gave you to overcome that, but it's a lot easier to just say, oh, I struggle with this or that. In the first chapter, Paul prayed that the Ephesian Christians would have, quote, their eyes, the eyes of their understanding enlightened. He now prays that they will comprehend the full love of God and as a result be strengthened. And thus empowered by God, who can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to the power that works in us. And that's not just an academic power. That's not just information. And so He has the power to change us, to change our marriages, to change our families, to transform us into the image of Christ. God in His infinite wisdom has chosen 
to work through prayer. We say we don't know how prayer works, and so we don't pray. And so we lack faith in what God says to do, which is to pray. Paul was a great thinker and a theologian, but he bowed his knees. Allow me to say something about our physical posture in prayer. It's possible to miss the point on either side of this. In Scripture, there are many postures assumed in prayer. Sitting, kneeling, standing, lifting of the hands, lying on the ground, bowing heads, lifting eyes. On the one hand, it is essential that we avoid the extreme of formalism, which is simply form without substance. So we can, whatever our preferred posture is, we can assume the posture. If that's all we're doing, then we run the danger of what Paul writes about elsewhere, this kind of thing, when he says some have a form of godliness, but deny its power. The Pharisees were good at this sort of thing, and thus Jesus said, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, on the other side are those who take their liberty too far, and soon their liberty becomes license for being overly casual and lax, which fails to appreciate the God to whom we speak. At the heart of the matter, really, is the attitude of the heart that's represented in the physical posture of prayer. And the posture can serve to remind the heart of what the attitude needs to be. Bowing the knee is an indication of respect and of reverence, of humility. Just sitting up and looking at someone is an indication of listening. It is, of course, possible to bow the knee And to not have reverence in the heart, and it's also possible to sit up and look at someone and not listen. The human heart is, of course, capable of great deception, and we can easily fool others, and we also easily fool ourselves. We recall that Paul has already taught us that we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him, in Christ. And now he tells us that he bows his knees to the Father. Boldness does not mean cockiness or casualness. Sometimes we think of prayer requests as a sort of shopping list of problems to be addressed. But prayer must always involve the worship of God, remembering who we're dealing with. And thus... As already alluded to, Paul says that we make our prayer, when we make our prayers and supplications, we do so with thanksgiving. And then we make our request known to God. We don't rush into His presence. Now, if you're dangling by your fingernails from the edge of a cliff, I think God will make an exception there, and you can rush into His presence with a request. 
But we're in too big a hurry sometimes, and we don't stop and say, Hallowed be thy name. As Paul says that he bows his knees to the Father, we should remember some of the other times when we read of people coming face to face with God. Isaiah's response was, Woe unto me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when John saw the Lord at Patmos, he said, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And so as we pray, we should remember who we're praying to. This is not just a form. Dear God, like it's a love letter or just a a note. Dear God, bless this food, bless our day. Thank you for everything. Amen. Are you really thankful? Are you really talking to the living God who loved you and sent his son for you? This is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, Paul says. Why did he make that point? Because God is the super father. All other fathers are deficit. They're sinful. They fall short. Some fall miserably short, but he is the perfect father, the super father. And no matter what tribe or family you come from, there is a father that supersedes all of of them. He is the father of all the families. Every other fatherhood is derived from this ultimate fatherhood. And so when Paul says for this reason, we have to look back at chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. For through Christ we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We have here a reference to the father and a reference to the household or to the family. So in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul is speaking of God who is the father of the whole family, past, present, and future. Some are now, right now, in his presence. Some of your loved ones are in his presence. Some are yet to be born, and then there are all the children in the world right now. This is the family of the redeemed. I think Hebrews is making reference to this in chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus. So that reference there to the church is to the family. There is this great family family that is assembled. Paul is teaching us, to use modern terminology here, to identify as Christians first, as children of God. That is who you are. You belong to this great family, and we all share the same Father. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. 
Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers, Paul wrote in chapter 2, and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The church militant and the church eschatological, that is, once it's all over and finished. Every last family member is here now. At the end of human history, in the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, we are now marching through history, and then, so the church has been marching through history, and then, in the church eschatological, it will reign forever with him. It no longer matters in one important sense who your earthly father is. Not even if you were from the family of David. It doesn't matter what tribe or country you come from. Or class. Or ethnicity. We are part of a new family. And we are to live in this world. And we are to represent this family and to represent our father. And so, let us bow our knees to our Father, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, may we also be earnest intercessors for your people as Paul was, praying for them continually, seeking diligently their spiritual welfare and growth and grace. We ask that these qualities that Paul asked for the Ephesian Christians may also be given to us, that we will be discerning, loving, strong, and wise, and filled with all the fullness of God. Let us not be satisfied without growth in grace and holiness, without spiritual maturity, without passion and desire. Let us long for these things and earnestly beseech you until you give them to us. Let us long to see them in others and use us to bring about the desire for them and the realization of them. Lord, teach us to listen, to listen with our hearts and to seek your spirit to move on our inner man that we might comprehend the fullness of Christ's love for us, and that we might live accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare now to come to the Lord's table, I want to just read some passages of Scripture about prayer to remind us of some of the things we must pray about. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's what Jesus tells us to do. And he also says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And in Luke 22, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Paul says, pray without ceasing. And brethren, pray for us. 
Philippians 1, 9-11, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Romans 8, 26 and 27, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You realize when you don't pray, when you fail to pray, then the Spirit when you're praying, the Spirit is interceding for you. You say, well, I'm not a very good prayer. Well, he knows that. He knew that before you didn't pray, or even while you are praying. He knows how inadequate you are, and that's why he's there. That's why he's the, the paraclete. That's why he comes alongside you to hold your hand, to intercede for you, to take what's in your heart, the burdens of your heart, the needs that you have, even ones you don't always fully perceive, and He intercedes on your behalf when you pray. James 5, 3-13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has had committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And I love the insertion there of the word fervent. To pray like you mean it. That involves some passion and some emotion and some enthusiasm in our prayers that goes beyond just saying the words. And so I want to urge all of us today to think about our prayer lives or our lack of a prayer life and how vital it is. Perhaps the problems we're having, and you are having some, right? Somewhere. Perhaps we could make some real progress on those problems if we actually did this. Not just heard it. Not enough to hear the sermon today about bowing the knee. But then we've got to go home and bow the knee. And actually pray. And actually begin to do this. However poorly, however infantile we are in those efforts... I want to urge you today as you come to the table and renew your commitment of being a follower of Jesus Christ to actually leave here and follow him in these instructions about prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, from whom every good and perfect gift comes, we give you praise and hearty thanks for all your mercies, for your goodness that created us, your bounty that sustains us, your fatherly discipline that chastens and corrects us, your patience that bears with us, and your love that redeems us. 
We praise you, O Lord, for your Son, our Savior, for your Spirit, our Comforter, for your Church, our home, and for the lives of all good and godly people, and for the hope of the life to come. We praise you, O God. Grant us, with all your gifts, hearts to love and praise you, and enable us to show our thankfulness for all your benefits by giving up ourselves to your service and cheerfully conforming in all things to your blessed will. Go with us now and continue to conform us as living stones in this spiritual house. Cause us to rest squarely on the chief cornerstone and receive our spiritual sacrifices. Bless this Sabbath day, our rest, our fellowship, our rejoicing, our food. And we pray all this through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen.